Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast and another wonderful episode in our series with our friend TJ Bemin. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And Tane, you know what our topic is going to be today? Wade, you know I never know what the topic's going to be. How to build a courthouse. What? I mean, that's going to take a while, right? I need well, to- Not really. I mean, what do you mean? Do I need to like go get a shovel? I mean, what? How, how deep are we? No, how, how, no, not how to build a courthouse. How to build a courthouse. In other words, we're going to get an expert who has helped a lot of different circuits around the state build courthouses, and we're going to get him to come in and and tell us all the things we need to be aware of and how to fund it and all that kind of stuff. Not how to build it. Oh, how to. Build a courthouse when that makes sense. Exactly. Um, and the guy and the guy we've called in as a I'm using air quotes expert is our buddy TJ Bement. That's right. TJ, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So TJ, before we begin, we try to let people have a little sense of who you are and what you do. Why don't you tell folks we know that you are a DCA for the 10th Judicial District. In the world of acronyms, that probably means absolutely nothing to some of our listeners. Why don't you help them understand a little bit what a DCA is and what you do? Sure. So there are 10 judicial districts in the state of Georgia. Uh, This goes back to the early 1970s uh, when sort of the profession of court administration sort of came to be. And the state legislature created 10 judicial districts largely mirroring the 10 congressional districts at the time. Obviously, we have 14 congressional districts now, but still only 10 judicial districts. And unlike congressional districts, we don't go through the middle of cities and towns and counties and whatnot. We actually follow along circuit lines. So uh, the 10th judicial district has a a swath of sort of northeast part of Georgia. Uh, I'm based out of Athens. I go all the way down to to your circuit, yes, uh, to the Augusta area. Uh, west to to Alcobi, where Newton and Walton counties, and then uh, sort of parts in between. So uh, the 10th district has six circuits covering 21 counties, and I've got 26 active superior court judges uh, and a numerous uh, senior judges. And uh, our role here is to help our superior court judges in everything from you know, count doing case counts to building courthouses, um, developing case management systems, and projects and sort of anything else that may come uh, up in between. So we do a little bit of everything. Well, TJ, we have wonderful listeners and they are very loyal, aren't they, Tane? They are. We have some incredibly loyal listeners. Should we shout out to both of them, Wade? (laughs) Stop. Don't keep mentioning Chris Hansard all the time. Anyway, so... And Cynthia Clanton. And Cynthia Clanton, that's right. So people have actually asked Please give us a podcast episode on how you might go about 
building a courthouse or building an annex to an existing courthouse when space dictates and you don't really know the mechanics or the politics of of that. And we know you can't handle the politics of any particular circuit or, or, or county, but this is going – how many – if you think back, how many courthouses have you been involved with? Um, directly from building probably about a half dozen in my 20 plus years in the courts. But if you count renovations and uh, updates and things like that, probably a good dozen or so. Um, you know, I've, I've worked on some literally from the ground up and others that have been in other in various stages of the process when I came into the picture. So what are the signs that you might need a new courthouse? Does it have anything to do with judges sitting across a desk from each other and uh, sharing their all of their office supplies and stuff like that? Is that a good sign? What kind of things? Uh, are we it is for? certainly overcrowding and not having room. Um, I would sort of put it into two camps. Um, do you have the politics in the will to build a courthouse in place? Good question. And do you have the uh, justified need in your case, as you're saying, Judge Cal, with, um, you know, folks being overcrowded and, you know, being knee to knee at the table when you should be able to have a little bit more, more room. So it's when those sort of two scenarios come to the middle and meet that we have a successful courthouse project. Um, but you can have them from either ends of the spectrum there for sure. So let's talk about let's let's assume for the rest of our episode today that that we have that will and we have that need. So where do we start if we start having those conversations with our local elected officials and whatnot? Where do we start? Do we start with like drawing out something on a, a cocktail napkin somewhere at at lunch, or do we what, what's where do you start, TJ? Yeah, the the best way to start is you know either internally, which you can do with, with folks like me, you can do sort of a programming analysis um, or you can hire a professional firm and it might be an architecture firm or it might be a programming and I'm using Judge Kell's air quotes here, a programming firm that does sort of space analysis. Um, and, and largely what that comes down to is talking to all the folks who would have a footprint in the courthouse and you have to factor in that there's folks that don't live in the courthouse uh, who don't have offices there, but who are regular visitors. That might be your public defender, your DA's office, probation, et cetera. Talk to all the folks who are regular parts of the process and start talking to them about what their space needs are. And then you start doing some of the magic of, of looking at trend analysis and populations of your county, et cetera, to forecast a growth over what the lifespan of your new courthouse might be. Um, working on a project right now and you know, commissioners are throwing around things like, oh, well, this is going to be a, you know, 50 or 100 year building. We don't build buildings like that anymore. Um, we're, we're lucky if we can't. That one uh, county in particular, half of their courthouse is actually a 100 year old building. It's actually about 104 years. And I can tell you, it doesn't age well at 100 years. Um, so really, it started having a need about 50 years out at the maximum. So um, so when you really look at that space analysis, you forecast how big you need, and then you start scaling back from there uh, of what that reality might look like. And that sort of kind of gives you um, a footprint, you know, of, of square feet to sort of start from. 
what are the what are the considerations when you're when you're going in there and designing a building? I mean, obviously you said who's going to be there, who's going to visit that, but what are the other things that that you look at? Sure, there's there's a lot of trends in courthouse design these days. Um, you know, obviously there's the aesthetics of um, do you want a courthouse that looks like a courthouse? Um, and there's sort of a couple different camps of thought there. Um, if you're I want talking, one that looks like a mall. <laughs> um, there are some retrofits uh, of, of places yeah. from malls since shopping malls are sort of going at, out of style. Wait, don't don't um, make fun of our friends in Gwinnett County for well, their law malls. Wow, shots fired. Wow. And that's possible a, if you've got a lovely a building. I love I love the um, yogurt shop that's there and you can get your shoes repaired. It's awesome. Go ahead, TJ. Now, if I could leave my dry cleaning and stuff, I would be a happy camper, you know, and, and get a sandwich and stuff too. Um, but, but to your point there, you know, the folks in Gwinnett and others um, have a lot of real estate to work with. Um, and that really makes a difference. Um, if you're dealing with a, an urban area, a smaller downtown footprint, you know, you're looking at more of the sky rise type of tower um, versus if you can put it out on, on county property outside the main city, um, you might have acres um, to deal with. And you can talk about surface lots instead of uh, a high-rise parking deck. Um, there, those things are significant. There, there's usually a lot of open land right around the jail, so you can always just conveniently locate it right, right there. Well, a good point there. You're going to get a lot of your sheriff's offices who are going to suggest that because the, the requirements and security and cost of transporting inmates, um, you know, really – encourages folks to do that you know when tane when they expanded their courthouse most recently with a look with and and to be fair with a great deal of foresight they built i guess vertically instead of horizontally they built up but they built an extra floor and left it studded out with, yeah we call I mean, that the shell game yeah. You, um, <laughs> and I'll tell you how that happened. And it is kind of interesting because I think I think for people who are contemplating this process, um, it, it, it does make sense. We were fortunate in that when they estimated the cost of our building before construction um, and then when they between that time and the time it was actually constructed, construction costs actually went down, which doesn't happen very often. But it was around the, two, you know, 2008, uh, 2007 uh, crash of all things construction. And our far-sighted county commissioners said, you know, we have this money, it's SPLOST money, we have to spend it. And we'll talk about some of that in a minute, but we have to spend it. And they built some extra space in. And, and we, we really have benefited from that because we have space for a couple of extra courtrooms, which one of which we will, we will uh, start using uh, in 2022. So uh, anyway, it's a very, very good, lucky thing for us that that happened. Yeah, that's one of the the, the things to consider in your planning, if you have any opportunity to, to shell out space, whether it's horizontal or vertical, and basically just leave the, the outer walls, um, you really allow yourselves for some room for configuration later. Even if it means going back to your, your county for some additional funds or some capital funds, because you're not adding, generally speaking, a whole lot of cost because you're not building out all the interior. And if you can shell some space, you save a lot of money in the future and give yourself some flexibility. So, TJ, let me ask you some some sort of off-script questions of things that I've heard judges and county commissioners and others say over the years. 
parking decks. By comparison, you know, that usually you're, if you have any space concerns and you've got a lot that has X number of acres and your your four walls of your courthouse are going to take up 90% of that, but you need all these people to be able to come in and out of your building at different times, parking decks. I've heard they are incredibly expensive. I don't know by comparison if a parking deck's more expensive than a courthouse. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, um, and, and forgive me, I don't know the sort of current numbers off the top of my head. But let's say, for example, on a a paved spot, you know, flat, um, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of I'm just throwing a number, a thousand dollars for a parking space, you know, to to grade that and flatten it and put the cement on. To do a parking deck, you're looking at a factor probably of about five to ten times as much for that same spot because you're not just doing the grading and paving you're then reinforcing it. And every time you go up a level, you have to do all that additional reinforcement in it. I've seen some projects where, you know, the courthouse could say be say 40 million, but the parking deck for only a few hundred spaces is going to be 10 to $20 million. Um, so it, it is hugely expensive and has to be factored in because you've if you're building a courthouse, you have to look at what the available parking is um, to service the folks that both work there and who will be visiting there, especially on your jury days and whatnot. What about cost of offices versus cost of courtrooms? Is there a a corresponding sort of um, not percentage, not a hard number, but is there a way to sort of say, OK, if we need a courtroom with this many square feet, it'll cost this. If we need an office with this many square feet, it'll cost that. Is there any corresponding thing there? Uh, there is. When we're building courthouses these days, um, you know, your architects and your planners are going to give you a, a total cost per square foot. And depending on what cost of materials and, and building and what the industry is saying, that's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood these days of probably close to 200 a square feet as to as much as, you know, over 300 a square feet uh, per square foot. And that, that accounts for everything. So that accounts for your courtroom as well as your office space. But generally speaking, your behind the scenes office space is going to be at a general market rate. Just what, uh, you know, an Amazon or a whatever could go to take a, you know, building downtown someplace and, and outfit some offices. Um, courtrooms are more expensive. And when you factor in the space around the courtrooms, they become even more expensive because we have what's uh, considered a higher flow pattern um, than most office buildings. Um, when you factor in that you all as judges should have a behind the scenes entrance and egress from our courtrooms. Same thing for transporting inmates. So in some courthouses, you're, you may be doubling or close to it, the amount of sort of hallways and behind the scenes pathways, what we call the secure pathways, um, in order to accommodate both staff, clerks, judges, and, and inmates. And that adds to the cost too. Plus courtrooms, depending on how fancy you get, are going to have millwork and they're going to have customized benches and lots of, of AV and, you know, tracks under the flooring and stuff for wiring and all that, which really adds to the price. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the traffic that we have. I heard a, a figure recently for our courthouse and I, I don't know if this is accurate, but, but it was something like 7,000 people a day coming in and out of the, of the court com, courthouse complex here. And I, I can see that because we have 
not only superior court, but magistrate court, juvenile court, probate court, all in the same complex here. And, and a lot of counties are going to have other functions in their courthouse. You could have your tax commissioner. You could have folks going to, to renew their license plates. Um, all those, while are, are customer heavy and folks aren't in the building for a long time, but that's a lot of foot traffic. So back to the earlier conversation when we talked about planning, you look at who is coming into your building and you plan not for a maximum capacity of folks in, but you look at um, you know, so we're an ebb and flow when you find a, the right average to account for how much space you need for queuing uh, in your, your public area for folks to get through security and things like that. So it's, it's quite a lot of formulas in the planning. So, TJ, we are having this conversation during the judicial emergency associated with COVID-19. It is not leaving us as quickly as we, we might have hoped. How much is that impacting the buildings you're looking at building right now when you're starting to think, you know, in an emergency, it might be really nice to have a few extra square feet or to be able to have an interchangeable jury box that can accommodate 12 people six feet apart. I mean, is that impacting sort of some of the decisions being made right now? Well, I I, I would assume so in some places. One of the, the projects that I'm working on uh, back in the sort of late spring, I got reached back out by the architect who was doing some of the preliminary plans and said, so um, this COVID stuff, um, do we need to rethink some of our layout there? Um, and so from a couple of perspectives of, do you need as many jury heavy rooms, meaning rooms for you know full jury panel, now that a lot of our courts were going virtual or were going with some remote capacity um, did that mean that we could cut back on the amount of seating and whatnot that we needed in those large courtrooms because we were doing virtual proceedings? Um, that's interesting. Um, so that's sort of one perspective. The other is um, that was sort of before the whole social distancing plan came in place. So that conversation. So if you look at in that context, none of our courtrooms are ever going to be big enough. Um, and we always will get pushback when designing a courthouse facility. Courtrooms are by far the biggest, I will say, fudge factor. Um, you squish them, you pull them out because everybody wants a bigger courtroom. Um, and then as far as keeping costs under control, we're always trying to shrink the courtrooms in order to provide for office space and conference rooms and kind of stuff elsewhere. Because ultimately you're, you're working within the confines of what the blueprint is for the exterior corners of your building. And something's got to give because you can only go so tall. Let's let's talk about let's talk about some of the big picture aspects. Let's say let's say we're in a county and we're contemplating. Uh, you know, we we've got a, an aging courthouse complex. We've got a growing county. We've got more judges than we have courtrooms. We have that sort of thing. What are some of the big picture categories of things that you start out with looking at uh, in order to 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 start the process of construction or figuring out what the courthouse might look like? Do you figure sure. out who to name it after first? Uh, <laughs> Wade Paget. Uh, that often goes to the politics of being able to build one in the first place. Yes. Um, that, so keeping that and and oftentimes comes the interesting side note that comes later is when that brass plaque goes on the wall, whose names go on it? Um, yeah, I have seen I, many a throwdown come to that at the very end of you know county commissioners, judges, staff, etc., all wanting to have their name 
maybe not on the big name on the front of the building, but on that plaque right by the door. I think we're going to get to the point where we start selling sponsorships for these things. And it's going to be the, you know, the Chick-fil-A Cobb County courthouse complex or the, uh, you know, McDonald's uh, Memorial Jury Assembly Room or something like that. All right. So, Tane, I didn't mean to distract. I Ask him your question again. <laughs> what are the big picture categories, TJ, that we would want to be considering if we were going into the actual planning process of a new courthouse? So obviously that initial planning process of getting everybody to the table, um, you know, big picture and little picture. So getting all, all the principles to kind of talk about, you know, what is your overall budget? Cause that's going to drive things. And what footprint are you looking at at the building? Cause that's going to, to give you your constraints as far as size. And then the dollar amount sort of factors in. Um, so often it's a, a series of meetings with all the players that have uh, a footprint in the courthouse. Um, the, the planners will come in and do what are called charrettes um, and sort of little mini whiteboarding exercises and talk to folks about what are the trends, what are the issues, you know, are you going to double the amount of judges, are you going to increase the amount of staff? They take that back and sort of put that into some of the formulas um, for what the length of time that the building is going to be occupied, whether it's a 25-year building, 50-year building, et cetera, and sort of forecast that out and then backwards engineer that into the dollar amount that's available and the footprint. Um, you'll find often that none of those numbers align in any way that is reasonable. Um, and that's where the negotiation comes to say, everybody doesn't get their own conference room. Everybody doesn't get a courtroom and a separate hearing room. Um, there's a lot of interesting conversations that will go on with judges of how friendly can you be with your colleagues? Um, Judge Padgett, you're well, well aware that you have a shared suite uh, approach to office space. That was not originally our plan, but it's, we, you know, four, there's eight of us, there's four courtrooms, let's, let's share by suite. It'd be a lot easier to organize that way. Right. The, the old planning was every judge gets their own courtroom, gets their own office suite. Uh, that may be the case for you, Judge Kell, and, and your colleagues, um, but as far as the trends in the industry, that is not the case because there's simply not enough room to do that with, with the growth pattern. So knowing up front to say maybe you can do that, but your growth pattern and how you configure it allows you to reconfigure and move some walls 10, 15 years down the road and change some of the, the office suites so that they can accommodate uh, either more staff or you know two judges you know, sharing an office space and sharing a small conference room slash hearing room, et cetera. So uh, a lot of those initial accommodations are looked at. So everybody needs to know, Tane, where they can find this outline on some of these issues and just a, a, a chart as to some resources. Where can they find that once I post it? Yeah, there'll be a ton of information available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. So TJ, let's talk about the money. Tell me... Tell me how, <laughs> tell me how we're gonna pay for this thing. I hear splossed, but there might be some other ideas. Can you help us with that? Sure. Um, I'd like to say, show me the money first, because <laughs> if the money ain't there, you ain't Don't even start. Um, Let's talk about what is it? What is a splossed? You you threw that word out there. I mean, yeah. Uh, so so splossed is a, a special purpose local option sales tax. So. Uh, according to our, our state legislature, um, individual jurisdictions over a period of multiple years, and usually they're 
the SPLOS periods range from about five to about nine years. Uh, the local county can decide to say, I want to add a penny onto the local sales tax. That penny will generate a certain amount of revenue over the cost, over the length of the SPLOS period. Like I said, that five to, to nine year period on average. Um, and usually even in smaller counties, that's going to be several million dollars. In a large urban county, you're talking over a five to nine year period, you may be looking at 50 to $100 million. Um, so it, usually the, the county uh, commissioners will get together a local group of citizens and advisors to recommend projects. And then ultimately that will go to the local voters to approve a SPLOST package. And then within that package, there are a variety of projects. Now there's some restrictions on what can be spent and generally building projects and roads and improvement projects are the highlights of SPLOST. So TJ, when we're doing, if we're, if we're not using SPLOST, is there another like set of sources of funds to do this if it's not a SPLOST thing? Right. Well, first of all, SPLOST is, is the easiest in the sense of it is a large chunk of money. Um, and once those revenues have been collected, that money is there and you're ready to go and, and you can build out. And since SPLOS can generate tens of millions of dollars, and in most places, a courthouse is going to be in a small county, 5 million, in a large county, it may be 40 to 50 million, you really have to look at, at how much money you need. Um, so SPLOS, like I said, is, is, is usually the easiest. Um, some counties look at local appropriations. That's very limited because that's just money that comes up in one year. Um, other counties will look at a combination of capital funds since capital projects are meant to be funded um, over multiple years, whereas a regular appropriation is what I refer to as pumpkin money. You get it for the year and at midnight, at the end of that fiscal year, that money goes away. Capital funds, that's not the case. They can be stretched out over several years, much like SPLOS. So there's often a combination of those. I noticed something on your list that says bonds. Yeah. Um, so for, for anybody who invests regularly, um, at some point in your life, usually a little bit later, you're moving from sort of a growth strategy to sort of a stabilized strategy. Um, your investors will look at municipal bonds and treasury bills and those kind of things, things that have a that are stable and have a low rate of return. Um, that's what cities and counties do. If they've got a large project or projects, they'll work with a financing entity that will go out and float a bond. So County X can say, I need $10 million and we want to repay it over uh, 10 years. So they can basically go and get a bond, essentially a loan uh, for that $10 million and they pay it back with interest. So the investors that will buy into that bond know that they're going to get one, two, 3%, 4% interest on that investment. So it's, it's a stable investment income. And the rates that cities and counties get for those bonds um, really goes to how well the, the county is doing fiscally and its accounting processes and stuff like that. So a really good county will be rated well and will get a lower interest rate and whose bond will then be, be more available. So case in point, another thing that I, I see some counties do with SPLOST, since that SPLOST comes in over a five to, to say nine year period, uh, a county might go out and get a bond, essentially a loan or a bond on the front end for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars at a really low interest rate 
and then use the SPLOS monies that come in over the next five to nine years to then pay down that bond. That allows them to start the project sooner without having to wait for those revenues to, to come in. Um, so that's a, an interesting sort of combination. And we, we're doing that right now uh, in one of my counties and it's allowing us to start the courthouse project sooner because we're not having to wait for the SPLOS to come in. Uh, interesting side note there, um, the county put that out um, and they got an interest rate that was like 2% on a million dollars, which is nothing. Um, talked to the county manager and he was, he was kicking himself for not going after more money because, I mean, in, in the scheme of fun, funding and financing, that's free money, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to start projects sooner. So it all depends on what the market looks like and how things are doing. If you had to guess, sorry to jump around on you, but if you had to guess out of your project, what a lot of people call FFE, the, the furnishings, the stuff in the rooms, what percentage of that project, that courthouse project, assuming you're not building a parking deck, is going to be FF&E? Because it's so easy to say, I want $30 million of walls, and that's great, but you got walls, and you need to put something inside the walls, and you go, wait a minute, I'm out of money. What happened? What percentage should you sort of put in the back of your mind for FF&E? And is it true that FF&E stands for furniture, fixtures, and everything? <laughs> I believe it's equipment, but it often is everything. I think it's everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, th there is, within the industry, there is going to be some sort of fallback percentages, and it's a couple of percent um, based on the overall cost of the project. But it also really depends on how your project is scoped out. If the E, or everything slash equipment, is factored in on the front end to say anything that is in the building. So all your lighting, your benches, your millwork, your box around the jury, anything that can't be moved and that is fixed, oftentimes that will often get built into the construction and building cost. And then the FF&E is sort of the things that we attach to the building. So that's going to be your chairs, your conference tables, your desks, your um, you know, cubicles and um, to a certain extent, your AV equipment, anything that plugs in or moves around in the building is going to go into that FF&E. I have found through experience, though, the FF&E, while a percentage gets assigned on the front end, it gets whittled away really quickly. Because when something didn't get factored in on the front end, those things that are attached to the building, they start digging into the FF&E. And you get to the end and you get a number and said, well, that's not enough to actually furnish all these offices. And then often your city or county is coming up at the end and trying to find appropriations or capital or whatever to then basically fill out the courthouse with everything that's or, needed. Or just you have to bring folding chairs from your house and you get like two sawhorses and a piece of plywood for your desk and you just make do. You, you would say that, but... Uh, I I have done that before. No, I've worked in government. I plan well. <laughs> I worked in government. We we would if somebody announced that they were leaving, uh, you know, retiring or whatever, you'd get back to your office uh, after making the announcement to your boss. You'd get back to your office, and there'd be people in there measuring. Yeah, furniture would people would like my lamp disappeared while I was down telling the attorney general that I was that I was leaving. I, mean, I was like. That was my personal lamp. Somebody took that. <laughs> I, I've seen worse. I've seen people going in 
as people are packing up with the little fan of um, paint cloths and chips oh. and stuff and walking up to the wall and say, I'm going to go with a light rose here. Or how about a uh, yeah. gray? <laughs> so let's get- talk. Let's talk accessibility. Because we are a public building. We've got people who have different health concerns or mobility issues. How big of a role does that play in your design? Uh, huge. Um, that should be a lot in the planning. Um, if, if the architecture and planning firm that you're working with isn't asking those questions up front, um, then you're doing yourselves and your community a disservice. But And that really needs to be part of a bigger conversation of, not just what are the accessibility and we're talking ADA and that kind of thing, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you have to have a certain number of ramps. You know, if you've got stairs, you have to have ramps to get in. You have to have, you know, elevators and doorways that are certain widths and things like that. Um, so accommodating that and, and a lot of our older buildings that we retrofit have to get waivers for a lot of those sort of ADA accessibility. But the other half of that accessibility conversation is what do you want your courthouse to, or who do you want your courthouse to be accessible to to and for what reasons that in this in light of these conversations about social and racial justice our, our courthouses are becoming a focal point of those conversations um, so we are looking at courthouse design through the lens of what is that intimidation factor and uh, what is that accessibility and do we have room for people who are pro se and who need legal assistance? Are we designing that into the accessibility to have places on the lower floors for folks to come in and fill out forms and have access to information and have access to resources? It's not just a building with courthouses anymore, essentially. I, I'm going to throw a little curveball here, TJ, and 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 if it, it throws you off, I apologize, but we didn't talk about this earlier, but what about green buildings? Um, I know there's been a push uh, to, you know, have uh, LEED certified buildings or green buildings or things like that. And I know they're more expensive. What's the trend right now with respect to that? You mean color? <laughs> yes. yes. We, we do yes, paint Wade. them green now. For your purposes, yes, Wade. That's what we mean. There, there is um, a standard called LEED um, and there it goes from, you know, bronze, silver to gold. And really it comes down to both the energy and, and environmentally um, friendly that the building is, meaning everything from using less toxic paints and materials to uh, materials that came from you know, recycled uh, materials um, in, in what you do, plus to the energy efficiency and whether or not everything from, do you have greenery around your building? Do you have uh, plants on the top of your building and some federal courthouses even do that for energy efficiency. So there's a lot of things that gets factored into that. Um, the trend in the sort of probably late 80s, really into all the 90s and early 2000s was really push and lead um, and sort of that sort of certification. Um, I, I think to the point where that became an industry standard and not something that you strive for. So most buildings are already moving that direction. But if you've got a a motivated county commissioner and planning process, it, it does behoove you to look at that to say, even if you're not going to get one of the certificates on the wall that says you met all the criteria to still try to, to check as many of those boxes as possible, because it's going to save you on energy costs, if nothing else. Down the road. If, I, if I sit in certain places in my office, um, the lights go out every five minutes. So... <laughs> 
You I need have to move, to move around I have more, to go dude. over to another part of the office and wave my arm to get the lights to come back on. But that's I, just me. I, I'm routinely in with, with one of my courts, um, newer building in the last you know decade, um, in our drug court, um, in our, our staffing in the, the judge's sort of conference room. And we'll be in there for an hour and we're talking and come, but we're not moving quite enough to trigger that sensor. So the lights will go off and everybody just doesn't even blink an eye. One or two people just start waving their arms and that's enough to, <laughs> to catch the sensor in the right way for it exactly. to on and turn the lights back on. Well, TJ, exactly. you know, we could probably talk about individual things forever and not touch some pe some people's concerns or ideas or thoughts. Let me ask you this. Do you spend a lot of time trying to buy the latest, greatest technology? Because God almighty, in the pageant division of the Augusta Judicial Circuit, we struggle using some technology in a courtroom. It just, we can't make it work. It doesn't work right. You can't see the thing and you can't use the pointer thing. It's just unbelievable. We can't play a DVD. Is there... What's that? <laughs> I know, right? Is there a thought process behind using the latest, greatest technology or do you use an industry standard and even if it's got some age on it? Had, what's your thought on that? Yeah, so from a courthouse design and build um you have to factor in what you're going to be doing for AV. And that's really just for sort of the things on the wall, meaning you're going to have screens or you're going to have large televisions and whatnot. The key thing is to build into a new courthouse, the tunnels and the tracks and whatever under the flooring and in the wall to be able to easily run wiring. That is probably one of the ex most expensive costs with new technology is the labor to connect all the pieces. Um, because we have all the wires for the microphones and the redundant microphones to the court reporter systems and all that kind of stuff. And you're trying to, to put multiple cables down, um, you know, a one inch PVC pipe that they left under the floor, you know, 20 years ago. And it's just not going to happen without ripping up the floor or pulling all the wires out and trying to start all over again and getting third, you know, thinner wires and whatnot. But as far as what type of technology to put in, um, you really have to look at what function you're going to be doing in that courtroom. Is it a, uh, what I refer to, is it an evidence courtroom or not? Because you can have a hearing room that's just going to be for motions and hearings and you don't need to be presenting evidence. So don't, don't worry about doing all that wiring and the expensive equipment versus a jury capable courtroom that you're going to want to make sure has the ability to, to display evidence and also has the ability to display that on multiple screens so that jurors can see, so the judge, the witness, the, the you know, members of the public, et cetera. Um, but I remember back to sort of a philosophy one of my, my first judges had, because um, I've always been sort of a, a technology guy and said, you know, let's get the latest and greatest. And he looked at me in, in my early days and said, no. And it was a little bit more of a thoughtful conversation than that, because I challenged him, he said, no, let somebody else be cutting edge let's be just behind that. So if everybody's talking about the latest and greatest, let that technology be out there a little bit. It'll become cheaper. Other companies will be in that same genre of capability and the kinks will be worked out because we in the courts as a whole are not necessarily trendsetters. Um, we are slow to adopt in the first place. And the last thing we need happening to us is for technology to go completely awry in a very important trial or other type of setting. We, we just can't afford it. Um, so 
we take a step back and try to adopt technology that's a little bit more tried and true. Um, so it really does sometimes put us, you know, years, if not five or 10 years behind where the newest, latest and greatest is. TJ, talk to us a little bit more about that whole accessibility piece, because we're all really super aware that this is the public's building. You know, ultimately, we work here and it's not but doesn't belong to the judge. We're really trying to make it accessible to people. Right. So the our courthouses of today, um, you know, belong to our community. Uh, there's a, a growing trend within the, the field of courthouse design called sustainable justice guidelines. And it's a combination of a couple of different factors. So it's the, the, the tried and true sustainability of sort of what, what Judge Kell mentioned, the, the green buildings. You know, are we building a, a courthouse that's sustainable using the right kind of materials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also who is accessing your courthouse and for what purposes? So designing it from a more customer-centric perspective, um, putting your clerk and your public-centric um, things on lower levels and putting your courtrooms and your maybe even your district attorney way up on the top floor because there's less public traffic going there and you're making the, the courthouse as accessible to the public, you know, trying to make sure that the screening process is as accessible as possible and folks are queuing up. So uh, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go into that um, so to make sure you're opening the building up as more to the public. Wade, um, let's be sure and remind everybody, too, that uh, we always provide you an outline of the topics and things that we're discussing with our uh, with our guests today. And uh, that'll be on our website available, along with some other resources and some links that uh, TJ has provided us. And Wade, where in the world would people find that? If you wanted to find that, you'd go to goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Folks, we want to thank TJ Bement. And TJ, I know that you are one of 10 DCAs. There are some folks that have local court administrators, but DCAs are available available throughout the state for Superior Court judges. Are they all as good as you? Uh, some are better. Oh, what a what see, look at that. What can what we, a can we give out their personal cell phones? We we certainly the, can. Uh, <laughs> um I, I do I do want to make a pitch for those that are listening up there that um you know, your, your DCAs and your local court administrators, we all have different skill sets. Um, you know, I can say as much as I like technology, I'm not an expert on it. I know one or two of my other DCA colleagues are. Others are stronger in budget and planning and caseload analysis or whatever. So that when you couple us together with your local court administrators, you've got a, a big brain trust that you can pull from. And we are happy to help each other out outside of our circuits and our counties and our districts. And we do on some projects. So um, ask for help. And, you know, we can put together a team of folks to, to help on various projects, including courthouse design. Folks, my name is Wade Padgett, and this is the Good Judgment Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My partner is... I'm Tane Kell. And again, CDC guidelines require that you wash your hands for 20 seconds after podcasting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. 
We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Hey, when do we drop the mics, Wade? Actually, these are expensive mics. Maybe we should just lay them down gently. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.